is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Peace talks to try to end the war in Ukraine go nowhere today. Russian, Ukrainian officials meeting in Turkey but couldn't agree on much. Vice President Kamala Harris is in Poland, where she is embracing calls for an international war crimes investigation of Russia over its invasion and the bombing of civilians. We will go in depth again into the war. We'll also hear from a man who lives in Kiev. He says he knows people who have left to escape the war. But he says he's staying to help his country in any way he can. The House passed a spending bill with a military and humanitarian aid package inside. We'll look at what the U.S. is doing on the military side to help Ukraine and push back Russia. Officials in Russia say their economy is hurting right now. We'll look at the sanctions again and the departure of the big corporations that are taking their toll. And then later on, the end of the show, L.A. history going to be made at the end of this month. City's getting its first female fire chief. We will talk to Kristen Crowley and ask how she plans to change a culture that's facing accusations of sexism and harassment. But we start with the war in Ukraine. We find CBS News reporter Steve Futterman in uh, Poland. Steve, thanks for being with us again. And we will in a minute or so get to uh, the vice president in Poland. But let's begin with those uh, talks that I believe uh, were at a level of the foreign ministers for the first time. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, very, very high-level foreign foreign ministers, Lavrov, the well-known foreign minister from from Russia, and Kubela, who not as well-known, but is going to become well-known in the U.S. and around the world. He's the foreign minister from uh, Ukraine. So we say they didn't go much of any place. Are we still at this situation where Russia is asking for things that they've been asking for all along, which are just pretty much untenable to everybody on the other side? Yeah, basically, they're asking for... Ukraine to give up territory, to basically surrender, to say it will not join NATO, it will not join the EU, it will demilitarize, things that are just not going to go anywhere. And, uh, of course, Ukraine's asking for a ceasefire. That's not going to go anywhere. I must say, though, at the end of the conversation, both men appeared to be uh, very uh, scholarly, very uh, not pointing fingers at each other. Uh, it, it seemed to me to be like the, the, the type of tone you would expect from foreign ministers. There seemed to be some uh, some respect for the fact that they were speaking to the other nation's foreign minister, and they both seemed to indicate that they would be willing to talk again. So we'll see where it goes. No one expected this first meeting to be substantive, and it turned out to be that way. Yeah, although, of course, it's hard to say where this is going to go. I'm looking as we're talking. There's a, there's a, I'm looking at something flashing across the TV screen, uh, quoting the Russian foreign minister as saying, and I quote, we did not attack Ukraine. So I'm yeah, not quite sure where you go yeah. from, from there. Uh, yeah. let, let, let's get to the uh, vice president, Kamala Harris, uh, in Poland. What, if anything, is she doing and accomplishing? Basically, she is just making the nations that she's going to meet here in Poland make make it clear to them and uh, the NATO countries as well that, that the U.S. is uh, supporting them in what they're doing. Obviously, Poland taking a large, large uh, uh, stake in bringing in these refugees. The U.S. Uh, is going to give $53 million in new assistance it will help countries like Poland. $53 million is not going to do that much, but it will help. It just shows the U.S. is behind them. A bit of a pep talk. She did talk about the uh, in, in the private conversations this 
miscommunication, if you will, or more than that, about the uh, planes that uh, Poland wanted to give to Ukraine but didn't want to say it was coming from Poland. So uh, it said, here, U.S., you take them. That didn't turn out to go anywhere either. So they discussed that little kerfluffle that they had the other day, but basically raising the flag, showing the European nations that the U.S. is behind them. This uh, thing with the planes, this is also a bit of an issue because it's the first time that there's been at least uh, complications with this, with NATO really sticking together because all the way through, we've had some unanimity to, to the messaging and everybody yeah. seemed to be pretty much on the same page. And then we got this and everyone was surprised at what the other ones were thinking of doing. Well, this may have a bit more to do with the fact that uh, Poland doesn't like its MiG planes that much. They're not really the best planes. And if they got rid of them and gave them to Ukraine, they were going to get some better replacements from the U.S. That may have played a, a, a bit of a role as well in what Poland did. But I think that's behind them now. Poland might have tried to do a, a fast one on the U.S., uh, give them the planes, but we don't want to give it to them. I, I think that's all been solved now. CBS News reporter Steve Futterman uh, with us again from Poland. Steve, thanks. Right now, though, the war in Ukraine devastating the country. More than two million people have already left. Many others are still in the country but have fled their hometowns. Now, we've talked to a couple lately of those folks. Lots of people are staying, though, right where they are. Kirill lives in Kiev. He spent most of his time for almost two weeks in a bomb shelter, and he is now looking to do his part to help the war effort. Kirill, thank you for joining us. Uh, let me start off by, by, if you can just share with our audience just a little bit about you. I mean, who are you? How old are you? What do you do in Ukraine? I'm curious. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, I'm 29. I'm living in Kiev almost for uh, 13 years. Uh uh, before the war, I was a film critic, uh, so right now I can't really do my job, uh, and that's uh, kind of painful. Not painful as uh, people who really struggle in, in uh, Mariupol, in Kharkiv, in Akhtirka. These cities uh, now are destroyed by Russian forces, by missiles and uh, airplanes, so... Uh, I'm staying in Kiev. Yeah, I lived uh, in the shelter almost uh, two weeks. Uh, right now, uh, I live in apartment. Uh, the situation is in Kiev is uh, a little bit easier right now than it was before. So uh, it's kind of safer, at least for the moment. Uh, I what I can say about myself. I moved in Kiev in 2009 uh, to study philosophy, and uh, in 2014 I graduated from from my university. Tell me about the the couple weeks and the bomb shelter. Where was that? What was that like? Was this one of the train stations? Was this an every night kind of thing because of the bombings? Take me through what that was like for you for that long uh, of a period of time. Uh, it was uh, uh, my bomb shelter was in the underground parking uh, near the apartment of my friend. It was a uh, quite good shelter uh, to compare to other uh, other buildings, so we feel safe there. Uh, it was warm. We even have Wi-Fi to work or to connect with our 
relatives, our friends, so we stayed in touch. And also we uh, kind of helping each other, but uh, I think uh, the last week uh, uh, most of the people uh, just moved uh, from Kiev, so uh, not much people left in the shelter. And actually, like last two, three days uh, in the shelter was only me and my friends, uh, like four of us. Is it is it nerve wracking? It must be to walk around your city uh, with I mean, you hear explosions occasionally. Right. And and there are no Russian soldiers within the center part of Kiev, but they're very close. Uh, yeah, they very close. Uh, and uh, I think uh, uh, first days was really nervous. We uh, in the first day, like everyone was in apathy uh, and uh, doesn't really know what to do. Uh, after that, you kind of um, hear explosions, uh, but you already understand what they are, how uh, long away they from you. Uh, so you kind of understand, is it close or is it somewhere far away? Uh, I didn't hear like huge explosions uh, near uh, my shelter. Only once I uh, hear like really, uh, re really close to us. Uh, it was kind of scary. Like it was uh, first time that I really scared about the explosion. The sky, it was at night, uh, uh, sky become red from black to red and I just run away to the shelter. Uh, yeah, that's, that was kind of scary. And uh, I think at the third day of war, we, uh, uh, me and my friends, we kind of go to the apartment because we need to wash our teeth and uh, do the other stuff uh, to feel uh, like a human at least uh, in the small things. So uh, I was I was standing in uh, the balcony and I was uh, I, I just saw uh, the rocket that coming to the uh, living building. Uh, you kind of uh, you can find the Im images uh, of this building like four floors just destroyed. Uh, I've seen it uh, not only in pictures. We go there by the car, and uh, I saw it. Yeah, that's uh, looking really stressful, disgusting, and uh, what Russians doing to our country? It's just horrible. We mentioned how many people have have left, and, and you mentioned too that you were one of the only ones still in in the shelter you were in. But you are pretty intense on staying in Kyiv, right? And why is that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to stay in Kyiv. I have uh, doubts, like maybe in first and second day, but uh, I have option to go to the Lviv uh, or other cities uh, in the uh, western Ukraine. Uh, but Kyiv is my second home right now uh, after my hometown. And I don't want to leave. This is my city. I love it. Uh, and I 
can go out of there because uh, that's uh, I'm a part of it and uh, my city is part of me right now. So I, I can go. Let me ask you a uh, maybe a very difficult, maybe impossible question for you to answer, Karel. Uh, are you more afraid of the possibility, which is a real possibility in your country at the moment, are you more afraid of the possibility of dying or more afraid of the possibility of a total Russian occupation of your country? Well, uh, of course I'm afraid uh, about dying. Like, uh, uh, this, I think uh, uh, every human being is afraid uh, in some in some point of his life, uh, I think uh, the war in Ukraine is already like for eight years. So yeah, but uh, right now it's a full scale, a scaled war. Uh, but I'm not afraid about uh, Russian occupation, full Russian occupation, because I I think it's impossible. Even if they do this uh, for our country, like how long they keep it this way one day two days uh, ukrainians ukrainian people never stop they can't conquer us uh the only option and i see and i see that it's happening in some cities and i see that it can happen to some, uh, most of our people that's putin and uh, russia just start destroying us like it was in Syria, uh, they just uh, destroyed the cities, and uh, because they can't win, and I, uh, I'm honestly believing in it. So I'm, I'm not afraid about Russian occupation because uh, they can't do this. Your plan for your time while you're staying in Kiev to help? I mean, what have you been been doing? in terms of in terms of the effort because everybody we talk to is is saying that they're playing some kind of part and i think that's also what's what's so inspiring everybody's doing something right yeah 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 that's true that's like i never felt uh, this inspiration and uni unity uh, in my country in my people like everyone is standing for everyone and uh, as for me, uh, right now I'm helping in the volunteer center. Uh, we helping with the food, with clothes, with uh, medicine, uh, and other other useful stuff. Like uh, yesterday, uh, there was a lot of refugees from uh, Irpin, uh, uh, Irpin town. It's near the Kiev, so uh, a lot of refugees. We just sorting uh, clothes for them, sorting medicaments uh, for them. And uh, when you're doing this, uh, you uh, not feeling that you're uh, useless. You feeling that you're doing uh, your job. Your uh, that's your mission, if I can say it. And uh, yeah, by doing this, uh, you kind of making Ukraine great, and uh, you understanding that we will win because uh, everyone is inspired right now and uh, everyone is united that's uh, Kirill he lives in Kiev and he's and he's staying put there Kirill thank you for talking to us stay safe we hope we can speak again soon
You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So the House passed the uh, big spending bill. Includes nearly $14 billion in humanitarian and military aid to Ukraine. A little more than half the money deals with the military transferring equipment to Ukraine and then covering current and future U.S. troop deployments in Europe. Now, there's already been a military aid dispute between the Pentagon and Poland over fighter jets. What military help can the U.S. now offer Ukraine? With us is Jeff McCausland, CBS uh, military consultant and retired U.S. Army Colonel, thanks for being back with us. So what more can we give? We're not going to give them jets. We're not going to have boots on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, What more is there? We certainly need to intensify what we're doing already and talk about that, delivering particularly anti-tank weapons and and shoulder-fired air defense weapons and more air defense weapons to the Ukrainians. But again, what you have to know is that you're going to deliver equipment they can absorb, that they can use. You can't give them, you know, a brand new F-16. They got nobody trained to fly it, or a new F-35. That might sound very cool, but just doesn't do them any good. At the same time, we got to remember the United States is providing assistance to them in terms of both cyber offense and cyber defense. We're doing cyber offense right now against Russian networks, and we're assisting the Ukrainians in cyber defense and holding off Russian attacks on them. And then, thirdly, of course, is intelligence. We're providing them more and more, hopefully, real-time intelligence. So they can target Russian movement in and around Ukraine. We might think about transferring to them what I would argue would be a shore to sea type of missiles as well. So that down in the south, Ukrainian forces can actually encounter some of the Russian Navy vessels offshore and some of the arguments that the Russians may be preparing to do an amphibious assault in and around Odessa in the uh, Black Sea area. So do we know that at least some of that is going to go over? And if we talk about the, the javelins and the anti-tanks, I mean, that, according to the video today, is is getting used because we saw that, that Russian convoy of tanks in the middle of the neighborhood, and uh, they basically took it out. Exactly right. And that's going on, and we've got to keep those supply lines going. In essence, what's happening flying into Poland is probably one of the biggest airlifts that we have done since the Berlin airlift back in the late 1940s in terms of the amount of cargo aircraft that are flowing in to deliver all that hardware from the United States or other points in Europe. And our European allies, oh, by the way, are contributing that weaponry as well. But it's going to mean that we also need to keep those supply lines open. One of the worries I had, quite candidly, if we had transferred these aircraft from Poland to Ukraine, is the Russians might have used that as an argument then to escalate and say, okay, what we need to do, we, the Russians, is cut off that line, that, that uh, ground line across the border from Poland to Ukraine. And they've got forces in Belarus as far as Brest that they might move south, interdict those lines, and now we can't deliver those things we need. To, we know they need even more than 20-, 30-year-old airplanes. So we have this, as you know, uh, huge convoy sitting not too far uh, outside of uh, Kiev. It's been there for quite some time, and uh, every day— we keep talking about and I keep reading about everyone guessing, well, what, what's happening? Is it because they were out of supplies? Is it low morale? Are they regrouping? What do you think is going on? Because they clearly have the, the, the numbers of people, if they wanted to, to push into downtown Kiev. They're like 15 miles away. It's the clearest evidence I have seen just how incompetent the Russians are militarily, that particular convoy. I mean, I commanded troops in combat. If one of my platoon leaders had put vehicles that close together, I would have relieved him right on the spot. That looks like they're moving administratively on Russian territory and not moving in a combat zone, for goodness sake, where they are enormously vulnerable. 
You don't even see them when they stop herringbone the vehicles so they can provide local defense, putting troops out to give them flank security. You don't see evidence of helicopters overhead to provide overwatch or positioning mobile air defense along the way to protect that convoy. It's just sitting there. And most of those vehicles now, I'm being told, are likely to have become disabled. Tires are flat. What does a soldier of any nationality do if they're sitting in a vehicle in the wintertime? I'll tell you what they do. They keep the engine running. So those vehicles are all probably sitting with empty gas tanks right now. So if there was ever a more temp- uh, testimony to Russian incompetence, poor li- leadership, poor discipline, and poor tactics, it's that convoy. Your thoughts on the uh, death totals for the Russian side that CBS was reporting yesterday afternoon, which were very, very high for, for such a, a short period of time. Yeah, the, the significant Russian casualties. I mean, Pentagon sources are talking in the four to 5,000 range. Ukrainians obviously saying 10,000. There's no doubt about it. There have been significant Russian casualties. And that's going to start putting enormous pressure on Mr. Putin, who's already said, well, we're not going to send conscripts in. That's a lie. They've already done that. And we know a lot of these soldiers don't know where they are, poorly trained, and they're basically being sent in to be ground up uh, by the Ukrainians. As that as that uh, continues, unfortunately, I think we're going to see the Russians do what they're doing right now and not as, not assault the cities because they know urban fighting is a meat grinder. They're going to stand back at some distance, particularly with artillery and rockets, less so aircraft, and just crush these places like they did in Chechnya, like they did in Syria, and try to break not only the Ukrainian military, but crush the will of the population. Jeff McCausland, CBS military consultant and retired U.S. Army colonel. Jeff, thanks. The economic war against Russia apparently hitting that country hard. The Kremlin says Russia's economy is experiencing a shock now that Western sanctions are taking effect. Large corporations pulling out of Russia are suspending operations. Uh, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Ikea, Nike, Daniel Treisman, expert on Russian economics and politics, also political science professor at uh, UCLA. Thanks for being here. So uh, one of the reasons, obviously, uh, it hit the economy hard and it discouraged uh, Putin from doing this. But also, if you're going to try and get to everybody in Russia to get them to feel or notice this in some way, uh, pulling out all these big names is uh, is one way to do that. That's right. Uh, and people are certainly noticing the people in the cities who have been living basically a middle class life quite connected to the world have been, uh, you know, consuming these international products, eating at McDonald's, uh, buying, buying furniture at Ikea. And uh, it's quite traumatic for them to be cut off from these international brands, uh, but also the people outside the big cities uh, in the industrial uh, heartland are going to feel this too, because their factories are going to have to stop producing because they can't get the inputs, the, the uh, computer chips and various other uh, components so uh, the whole economy really is is uh, uh, staggering at this point, and we're going to see more. Is there an analogous situation? I can't think of one, actually, where corporations, uh, I mean, governments, yes, imposing sanctions. We've done that uh, against Iran, against North Korea. But uh, for the corporate world to say, uh, we're out of here, how often has that happened? Well, it's it's rare, but uh, one parallel would be the embargo on South Africa during the apartheid era. Uh, there was great uh, pressure from uh, from the general public in many countries uh, for for companies to disinvest from South Africa, and uh, and that had an effect there. It, it increased the sense of 
isolation, especially for an uh, upwardly mobile growing middle class. Uh, becoming middle class is really becoming plugged into the world uh, in a sense. And uh, it's uh, demoralizing uh, to suddenly not be able to buy all those products which the rest of the world uh, is consuming. So South Africa is one example. Um, it, this sort of thing tends to take a long time uh, to have a major impact because it has to, uh, it has to not just affect people, but uh, stimulate some sort of uh, organized reaction. Um, but uh, that's what we're beginning to see in Russia. Right. I was going to say that is the tough part, right? Especially in Russia is the organized reaction because uh, you organize and you react and you can go to jail. Right. It's Of course, it's, it's only logical that the uh, state, the Kremlin would, would use uh, repression on a, on a much more, uh, on a broader scale and uh, more extreme kinds of repression than they were doing before. And uh, frankly, it takes uh, enormous courage these days in Russia to go out and protest. People are arrested almost immediately. And uh, tens of thousands have already been uh, arrested and detained, at least, or or charged with criminal offenses for, for protesting. What do you think the end game is for these major corporations? I mean, many of them spent uh, years, sometimes decades, negotiating different agreements to get their companies to operate inside first the Soviet Union, then Russia. Now they're pulling out or closing down. Uh, what's their end game? Well, it's stunning how fast this has been happening and uh, what costs the companies seem ready to absorb. So BP uh, walking away from Russia, uh, that's uh, putting $20 billion or more at risk. And Shell also, we've seen uh, uh, ending its cooperation with, with uh, Russian partners. Um, but I think uh, we don't know. Some of the companies are, are not so much liquidating their uh, partnerships and their involvement as just putting it on hold, uh, ceasing operations for the, for the moment. And uh, I imagine they could go back in quickly if this thing ever gets resolved. Um, but uh, for others, uh, it's there are big transaction costs in getting out and there would be in getting back in. So it looks it looks pretty serious, at least uh, in the medium medium run. Um, and uh, in Russia now, the government has uh, said that they're going to nationalize uh, companies, uh, Western companies, assets uh, in the country if those companies uh, leave uh, and uh, uh, that, again, would make companies in the future very reluctant uh, to get back into that market unless they were fully compensated. Yeah, we, we pay attention to the language, right? When people say what they're doing, it's either I'm going to stop new investments sometimes and, and then still keep what I've got there. Or some of them on the complete opposite are just, uh, to your point, you know what, I'm going to write it down as a loss and just walk away. And that's that's what's going to happen here. Yeah. And it comes at an interesting time for the oil companies, obviously, because they're at the same time, they're trying to move to a clean energy, uh, a new world uh, with new lines of business. Uh, so uh, perhaps they can they can see it in that context and reduce uh, investments in, in oil and, and, and dirty fuels uh, with all the political problems that involves uh, as part of their transition uh, to a new business model. But obviously, it's huge amounts of money. And uh, it's just stunning how fast these decisions have been made. Daniel Treisman, expert on Russian economics and politics, political science professor at UCLA. 
This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Felton. L.A. history going to be made later this month when Kristen Crowley will be sworn in as the city's next fire chief. She'll become the first woman to lead the department. She takes over when the current chief retires on the 26th of March. Crowley is currently the department's deputy chief. She takes over at a time when calls are growing for big changes within the department following accusations of hazing, sexism, and even sexual assault. Kristen Crawley is with us now. Thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. So it's a big job ahead. Where do you intend to begin? Well, you know, I've already uh, set my priorities. Priority number one is to just to, to ensure that we're operationally ready. Anytime anybody within our community needs service, that we have proper staffing and the proper resources to make sure that we can serve uh, those in need. Number two, just firefighter health and overall well-being is, is a priority of mine as well. Just you know, We often don't think how important it is to ensure that firefighter safety is a priority, but also just that balance of overall general uh, health and uh, mental health as well. So that's uh, going to be moving forward. And thirdly, work environment. You touched on that a little bit. Work environment is an essential piece to ensure that each and every member who works for the LAFD comes to work, they feel safe, they feel like they're a part of our uh, cohesive team, and that's going to be a a number three priority for me. Well, let's talk about that some more, because there was a survey that showed, what, it was like 56% of women in the department, and there's not that many women, so majority of them um, had experienced either bullying or harassment, and then uh, you have people saying, not only is uh, there misogyny, not only does it exist, but it's really deep-rooted. Right. So when it comes to work environment, you know, I'm paying really, really close attention. I'd be a fool not to when it comes to people within our organization, the women. And we're only at uh, about three and a half percent out of our 3,400 firefighters. So with the number that high, uh, that's something that is essential that we move forward with first and foremost expectations and accountability. So expectation from me coming from the top down is to ensure that each and every member understands how we're supposed to treat one another, and if somebody does step out of line, that that individual will be held uh, full of, accountable for their actions. In the years that you have been with the department, did you experience any of these issues? You know, um, reflecting back, and each and every one of us has our own experience. For me, I've had issues, and, you know, the issues were smaller, but I had to address them. I had the opportunity and I took the opportunity to make sure that if somebody did step out of line, did something that was inappropriate, whatever that may be, that I did address that person first and foremost and I handled it at the very lowest level. And usually with that strategy and tactic that I used throughout my career, uh, that usually at that point it ended. What do you think it is is it that they don't feel that uh, women fit the mold of the firefighter or their notions of one? Do they think they're not physically capable for the job? Is it because there are so few women that uh, they just kind of write it off? Like, what are you doing here? You know, um, that's an interesting question. That it, it it is something that we need to dig into is the why behind individuals would feel so compelled to treat others, whether it's women, underrepresented groups, or men uh, who are mistreated. Mistreatment, there's absolutely zero place for that here in the LEFD, let alone the fire service, let alone any work environment. So the why behind it, you know, um, that is an important piece that we need to look into because that will help us with our strategy and tactics. But first and foremost, like I said, I think every human being 
understands a proper way to treat another person. Uh, being a woman on the job and working my way up through the ranks, uh, you know, there was always that question, well, hey, can she do the job? And as soon as you prove that you can do the job, then the eyes are usually off you. And, you know, my strategy specifically that worked well was, you know, I want to outpace everybody, outwork everybody, ensure that I was bringing credibility and confidence into whatever role I was playing within the department. Mike and I were talking a bit uh, before off air, and and Mike had an interesting observation, uh, which was that, uh, you know, often little boys – uh, Mike's shaking his head. <laughs> Often little boys... Is, see as, the truck go by yeah, and you get really fire, excited. Right, when the fire truck goes by. Uh, you don't hear that as much about little girls. Is that because of conditioning, because of, of, of them not having the expectation of being able to pursue firefighting as a career choice? Right. So those are kind of when you take a big step back. Is that just kind of like a gender norm type of a thing where little girls and little boys are socialized to do certain types of things? I tell you what will break the mold, though, and I actually had direct experience was with this was when I was the engineer driving down the fire, you know, driving down the street with the fire engine and little girls and little boys would see me and they'd, they'd kind of poke their mom or dad or whoever they were with and kind of point at me and go, wow, I, I didn't know first and foremost, that a a girl or woman could be on the fire department, let alone drive the fire engine. So I think once we get um, to that kind of tipping point where no longer women in uh, kind of uh, male-dominated types of uh, environments or work environments, once you get to kind of that critical mass, it it no longer really becomes an issue. Let's talk firefighting. Uh, We're in an urban environment, clearly, but uh, climate change affects all of us. Is it going to have an impact? Is it already having an impact on how the fire department in the city of Los Angeles has to go about fighting fires? Absolutely. You know, you talk about the climate change. It has directly impacted us. We used to have a window, a window where on an annual basis we would consider that a brush season. You know, in today's times, brush season is year-round, so that absolutely impacts the fire department, we continually train and we're ready to respond uh, to any brush fire or wildland fire within the city of L.A. and the re- as well as the region and the state. Uh, but, you know, we're ready for that. We train for it. Um, and I think the word of advice also is just to make sure that our communities are prepared. It's year round and we no longer can take a breath and say, OK, we get a break because there's never going to be a break. Are we getting better at people actually realizing, especially after going through some of these big ones over the last few years, it used to be that you would get the evacuation warning or the order and, and you'd kind of get your stuff together and then they'd come through and knock on it. Now it's like as soon as that comes, it means the fire is right there because it moves so fast now. You got to go right then. It does. And that preparation piece is so important. The prevention piece is so important. The response and then the recovery. But I think from the community resilience side, the community is more aware of how to prepare. It's ready, set, go campaign in which they got to have their items ready and, you know, ready to go when we uh, call and we need people to evacuate. And the issue that people don't often think about is if they wait and evacuate and we're trying to get up there with our multiple fire engines to prepare to uh, prevent fires in those structures and defend them, that sometimes those cars and and individuals can get in the way. So I think people are more aware of it, and they're doing what they need to do when we ask. Okay, so we've talked about changes in the department. We've talked about the environment and firefighting. Let's now talk about money. 
uh, because as we have moved, as you've just pointed out, into a a pretty much year-round condition where brush fires can pop up uh, when you least expect it, or maybe when we do expect it. Uh, That means uh, you need to have people who are prepared and can work overtime, right? It means a drain on equipment. Does the department have the funding it needs for the next, I don't know, let's pick an arbitrary time period, uh, five years, to do the job that you think it needs to be able to do? Right. So that's, you know, we have to be very, very strategic in what we ask for and why and the justification, obviously. We've always gotten a lot of support from city leadership uh, when, we, when we have a strong justification when we ask for additional staffing. So we, we have our fiscal year uh, within the city. It's from July to July. And, you know, the strategic plan for the fire department, which we're working on right now, will allow us to look at that long-term strategy when it comes to budget requests as well as staffing resources and needs. So uh, that strategic plan is a really important roadmap for us to uh, design and implement so that we can better prepare for the future. Police are having a hard time hiring. How is it in terms of recruits for you guys? Right. So I'm glad you asked that. We are actually right now hiring. Uh, We have a window of opportunity. I want to make sure that I had uh, the opportunity to speak to the listeners that the LFD is hiring. And if you go to our joinlfd.org, it'll have everything laid out there for our potential candidates that are interested in becoming firefighters. It closes on June 15th. So with that, you know, we do have thousands of people that apply. So we are looking for those highly qualified candidates who bring in kind of that that core value attitude of a life of service uh, above self. And it's really um, a, it's, it's a preparation piece, and we're leaning forward to ensure that we prepare our candidates. Um, but as for the overall numbers, uh, we're in good shape in regard to the number of candidates that are applying for our entry-level firefighter positions. Okay, so let's go full circle to where we began. Uh, when it comes to pitching potential recruits, does, does the pitch have to be different to try to get more women? You know, the pitch isn't necessarily different. I think that the, the it's more of a, a very thoughtful and mindful way of how we go out and we recruit underrepresented groups and women. From the women's perspective, you know, and the men's perspective, not everybody uh, – This job isn't for everybody in regard to what we do and how we do it, meaning, you know, the physicality of the job, the the mental side of this job, and like I talked about earlier, that core mission of what we do, and that's serving the community of Los Angeles. So, um, you know, we we are strategic in how we recruit uh, women in underrepresented groups. Uh, We're looking at, you know, just making sure that that information is out there. And where we see success is when we can actively recruit but also prepare our candidates for the fire academy so that we have successful probationary firefighters that hit the field and they're ready to serve the community. I got to ask you before we run out of time, you ever driven the back of the hook and ladder? Yes, absolutely. What is that like? That's, that's a really the coolest fun spot thing. to be in uh, for that particular 24-hour <laughs> shift. That's a tiller position. And uh, yes, absolutely. I've had the opportunity to, to uh, tiller one of our 100-foot aerial ladder trucks. I think Mike it wants seems to. Like the I best think you want, to, you want to do that. Yeah, I want you? to drive the back. Every, <laughs> it's a lot of responsibility. That's a, that's a lot of ladder that you're responsible for for the back end of that yeah. Make me a promise, though, Mike, if you manage to ever somehow do yeah. that, let me know so oh, I will stay you. off the street. I come swinging around the corner. Yeah. And, Mike, don't forget, we're hiring. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll talk soon. Incoming Thanks. L.A. City Fire Chief uh, Kristen Crowley. Thanks for talking to us. That's In Depth for today. Back tomorrow.